Welcome, everyone, to American Girls, the podcast. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series, book by book. I'm Mary, and on this episode, we are so thrilled to bring you a conversation with Anne Helen Peterson. You know, I don't know if you've ever wondered if Molly McIntyre is a boomer, or if perhaps Taylor Swift is a Kirsten or going through a Kirsten stage, but truly, Anne Helen Peterson is the complete expert on all of these topics and so many more. We were so excited to get a chance to talk to her about her own history with American Girl and to hear about her new book, Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So we're so excited to be chatting with you today. And we first connected over Twitter, like all Mm -hmm. great, you know, millennial friendship stories do begin. (laughs) And we were so excited when someone tagged us because you had posted a holiday photo of yourself with an American Girl doll. And I don't want to say who yet. We're going to build some suspense. So we reached out to you and we said, you know, we want to hear that story. And you shocked us and you teased us and you said, only if I can tell a Kirsten story. <laughs> so now I think wow. we have at least two stories, you know, by way of introduction of you to hear yep. about your your childhood relationship with American Girl. Yeah. So, I mean, I should have wanted the Kirsten doll. I am from Minnesota. I am wow. I am Norwegian. Like my mom had like or my grandma had like all the traditional like dresses and like you know, all of that stuff like would have been the the place that I should have gone um, immediately but gravitated towards was be like, oh my gosh, this doll looks like me. Like I have a square face, like all Scandinavians, you know, I, um, and like, that a I thing can, with Scandinavians, they have square yeah, faces. Well, there's, there's a great part in, uh, in Deadwood, the, the Western series from HBO where they call like all of the Scandinavian immigrants, they call them square heads. And there's like a little girl whose family is killed in a massacre and they, they call the nice. little girl like just a square head and she looks exactly like a Kirsten doll um, and like how I looked when I was, you know, about four years old and, and my like, you know, short to my chin haircut did not help me look any less square faced <laughs> than I was. But I, I, you know, in hindsight, it's really curious that I, I didn't gravitate towards 
towards her because like those were when I was first familiar introduced to American Girl Dolls when I was in third and fourth grade. So that would be early 90s. There was only Molly, Kirsten and Samantha. So, you know, OG. There is before that, right? I'm sure you guys know all about like that there was before like American Girl Dolls before that, right? Like before that period. Is that correct? So those are the first three put out under Pleasant Company, which yeah, created- yeah. So you're no, you're exactly right. Okay. So Courtney, who just came out 2020, lived yeah. in 1986, and she owns a Molly doll because those first three Molly, Samantha, Kirsten, all are released by Pleasant Company in '86. Okay, so this is where I'm confused because a friend of mine was like frantically screenshotting all of the photos <laughs> of the new doll. Yes. And was like, wait, there were dolls before the the original three or like there was a company that like was before that or something. So that had confused me. This happened this morning. I'm glad to know that it's still uh, my history was correct. Um, and but I wanted the Samantha. All I wanted was the Samantha. And I think like I'm sure a lot of people that you have spoken with, it was because she was fancy she just had that fancy shit, you know, like that, that freaking <laughs> that muff. Like all I wanted. <laughs> that, that muff is muff. iconic. Yeah. <laughs> and and like I think I, you know, I grew up in rural Idaho. So like the the farm life of Kirsten was not glamorous in any capacity. I was like, I know that stuff. Like I don't need a doll to tell me about that. <laughs> um <laughs> I can just the like, guy can have Samantha. And that I think was my version of almost like yearning for like a sophisticated urban life like just the way that Samantha navigated urban spaces and like even just just to the fact that she like I'm trying to remember was she an orphan she was right tragically yes 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 and that's (laughs) always much much more interesting and then Molly was just so uh, like moderate Like, she's just, like, very reserved, like, and very, you know, doesn't, she doesn't have a lot of stuff because she's war rationing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's less fun. There's less flexing in the Molly books and in Kirsten. I mean, Kirsten flexes in a lot of weird ways, like letting a raccoon into her house for (laughs) no real reason and dealing with the chaos that that creates. But yeah, I hear you. And I'm wondering, like, when you moved, so you moved into New York as an adult, right? So, I mean, did you, did living in this urban, like, hip life, Samantha style, live up to your childhood (laughs) hype? Well, you know, I lived in Brooklyn, of course. So really, I was like, I am Francie Nolan from A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, you know, (laughs) like that. Mm -hmm. That was much more of how I thought about my apartment uh, underneath the the freeway in in Brooklyn. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you go into the like to get to Central Park and like, you know, that area of New York from Brooklyn. It's like a 45 minute train ride. But I think that it really did inform my understanding of what New York was like, it's like it was Samantha, Samantha books and uh, the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frank Weiler. Like those were the two books that really just made me understand New York. It's like this weird, glamorous, dirty, mysterious place. <laughs> Those seem like good preparations. Yeah. That book you just mentioned 
because people like we're both historians now and so people say yeah. oh you must have wanted to be that as a kid no I didn't know anyone who did that looks like <laughs> Basil E. Frankweiler made me think like you must be this really special person to work in a museum and now I know you're probably just underpaid and overeducated but <laughs> looks like that make you think this is a really like special cool job yes. right yes. like this is for wow. really special people who also like know about secret hangouts at night and I thought like oh that it never occurred to me right like yeah. it never I and I work in a museum now but I never understood like who gets those jobs like that was very mysterious and exciting to me not as cool as moving to New York City but you know <laughs> well I think it's similar to to librarians like I thought that librarians also possessed a, a secret esoteric knowledge <laughs> um and it, but really I thought that their only skills which again seemed mysterious were uh they read all books, like every book, <laughs> and that they knew the Dewey Decimal System because when I was growing up, our libraries still were on Dewey Decimal. And that, to me, I was like, wow, like you went to special school to do that. <laughs> Although thinking about all our childhood books, because you're talking about the museum book and Samantha, and I'm thinking about when you wanted to work in a museum, I was reading Babysitter's Club and I thought oh, like wow. being an adult was like, oh, I could have my own business. That sounds great. <laughs> like a Babysitter Club business. I don't know what I was thinking, but well, all of these- most like, identify with though? Of those. Of oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's why you thought you could have your own business. <laughs> but like all of those books made us think that we wanted to go into these fields that then your book has shown us in an almost <laughs> debilitating way, like- <laughs> can never work out question mark so I guess like we'll get there but just saying who knew like I didn't really read those books correctly I guess like I don't know I mean who what knew? is a book for that I'll have like that's it is something that I think about like what is a childhood book for what is it teaching you about the world and I do think that it imprints a lot of understandings about about class and also about professions and a lot of these classic books that we read that are still read are really overladen with these antiquated ideas of what each profession is, whether it's a doctor or a librarian or whatever, like you just, it is an old, the reason I wanted to be a professor is because I read Wall Stegner's Crossing to Safety, which is all <laughs> about like being like just a very relaxed professor <laughs> in the 1950s at <laughs> University of Wisconsin-Madison and like being best friends with another professor and his wife. Like that was the entire thing. I was like, I could be a professor great no big deal yeah <laughs> it sounds good yeah Oof. dark we got almost I mean we really got to the end of the Samantha books before we learned what guard's job was like the way <laughs> that you're talking about like some books kind of prepare you for you know like representations of people working and what that might mean like Grand Mary has passive income supposedly because yeah they, they both like are obsessed with status and never talk about money. They never talk about where right. it comes from or if they might lose it. They're very secure. Cornelia is a suffrage campaigner, but does not seem to have a day job. Yeah. And people kept telling us like, well, you can find out easily what guard's job is. I wanted it to be revealed in the course of the books. You have to buy a supplemental to learn he's a lawyer. <laughs> and it's obvious in retrospect, but it's like, sir, you're not that interesting just tell us but he never has to right like we see right. we see Kirsten's parents working really hard yeah he goes to a mining camp right when they need him the most which is right. like classic but <laughs> well I do think like that that classic idea of like rich people don't talk about money right like then that's appealing like if you are 
someone who couldn't afford the doll, but could only access the books and you're reading that you're like, rich people don't have to talk about money all the time. Mm-hmm. Like it's just there. Like the, the freaking stole is just there. <laughs> you know, this actually, this is total non sequitur, but it makes me think of the fact that like my grandmother who is Scandinavian, who like was trying to pass down all of these Nor- Norwegian heritage items to me had to watch me choose Samantha over Kirsten. <laughs> And then she made all of like she made me a bed because she wasn't going to pay for a bed. She's like, I can make you a bed and made <laughs> me like a, a mat- the matching nightgown and all that stuff that like, you know, you would never pay for. And just like here I am just like willfully not choosing her culture and also not choosing her experience in the form of the World War II doll. Hmm. Um, it's just in hindsight, I, I, I imagine she thought either it was very funny or very sad. <laughs> I mean, did anyone say anything to you? So you get a Samantha doll. Did any of your family members say anything to you about like, why do you want this doll? Or what is this about for you? Mm -hmm. You know, I should, you know, in the book, there's places where it's evident that I have interviewed my mom to ask her questions. And Mm -hmm. she has so much insight into like what a weird little girl I was. Like just, (laughs) I was very, I was a nerd, right? But also trying to be popular. And I wonder how much of it had to do with the fact that my best friend, who was like a very fancy girl who always had like matching outfits with her sister and collected those expensive horses and the briar horses. Yeah. (laughs) So, and she had a Samantha. And so I was like, of course I want a Samantha. It's like Mm. Samantha's aspirational class symbol. Mm. Um, which I mean, all the, all the dolls are to some extent, but, uh, thinking of Samantha as like something that I could aspire to and like, and her mom was fancy and like did hair, like did her hair and that sort of thing. So, and also she had the braids and bows book. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know this book? This is a iconic elder millennial book, maybe younger Gen X. It's a, it's called braids and bows and it came with taught you how to do all sorts of braids and it came with like the apparati to make the, some of the braids and that sort of thing to do like, so like you could learn how to fishtail and do all that sort of thing. And I couldn't do it on my own hair because it was short. Cause my mom told me some girl's hair just didn't grow past the chin because she she just didn't want to deal with it. (laughs) And my best friend's hair was long. So she could always do the braids and bows, but I couldn't do them on anyone so I needed a doll. <laughs> and so I did a lot of practice on Samantha. That makes sense to be yeah. practicing on Samantha's hair. I mean, if you told me right now at 34 years old, like I'll give you a million dollars if you can do a French braid on like your own or someone else's hair, I'd just like <laughs> fake my own death. Like, <laughs> Could you do a fishtail? Those are cool again. Absolutely. Like there's no <laughs> hairstyling of any kind that I can do. My sister had those tools. They were in a drawer and it was also overfilled with scrunchies because we homemade scrunchies. Yeah, same. I would make them. So I also made my own vest with my mother. It was very (laughs) cool. And so I would make them match. And I remember the day we kind of finally emptied out the scrunchie drawer. And it was very sad because it was like both a time that had passed and also just like a bond that had passed where it was like, you know, you're not braiding my hair anymore and we're not Mm. making, no one is making scrunchies anymore. Yep. Except now I feel like if you were Gen Z, you could. 
right? Oh and yeah. Well, they all off. wear scrunchies. I want to yeah. be like, you can, yeah, sure. You can go buy those at forever 21. I know how to make them. Right? I, know. Like, I know how to do the, like You're I did it pioneer. with um, weird uh, materials. Did you ever try that? One time I made Everything. it with bubble wrap. Oh, I thought that was the coolest scrunchie I'd ever made in my life. I thought you meant fabric. I mean, I was not thinking that far outside of the box. I was like, (laughs) we had cow scrunchies, like we, you know, it was very cutting edge. Molly got to wear them too. We're we're both Molly's, like full disclosure. Uh, my best friend now is a Molly, and every time, like, whenever we talk about it, it's like, of course, Beth was a Molly. Like, (laughs) it's just like, yeah, of course. But I should have been a Molly or Kirsten. But I just said I. This is like the story of my high school life. Like I became a cheerleader because I didn't have anything else to do. I was like, how can I have the least painless or the, the, the least pain getting through a very traditional high school? I guess I can become a cheerleader. And like that gives me like a, a social path that can like just get through. And there wasn't wow. anything else that was like, OK, I'll be on the math team and also a cheerleader. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, was that traumatic? Did you make it through cheerleading? Oh, yeah, I loved it. I mean, I just I think that the dance part of it was really wonderful. There wasn't the like backstabbing Heather's component to it. that I think <laughs> It was more like we're going to do dances and cheers together and also get every other Friday off of school. No, during football because we because we lived in Idaho, you had to drive six hours to the away games. Oh my gosh! So you would just get on a bus and miss school. Not a big deal. That sounds amazing. I too would have joined cheerleading if you could miss school that much. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been amazing. When I was a freshman, the cheerleading coach just came up to me and said, "Like you're the shortest girl." in your class, like as a freshman, and I need someone for the top of the pyramid. Are you interested? That was it. It was like, you don't have to try out. Like you're in. (laughs) I need you. And I was like, no, no, thank you. (laughs) I don't like heights. I'm afraid. Uh, I can't do it. Well, my mom had kind of tried to implant implicitly feminist ideas in me. Like when we watched The Little Mermaid, she was like, why do you think that she doesn't have her voice? Like, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but so when I came home and was like, mom, I'm trying out for cheerleading. She was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't know what to do with it. She she was pretty, you know, really encouraged me reading. And uh, there's a part in the book where I mentioned that she was very mindful about having me like rotate between a babysitter's club book and like a slightly more high-minded for a fifth grader book, like the mix of files of basil. Um, and I think though that she liked I'm trying to think about how she thought of the American girl books. I think she thought they were a little bit facile, but mm-hmm. also she liked that they were educational and had like some twists, like some things that you wouldn't necessarily mm. like you know, there's a little bit of class awareness going on in the Samantha books, but yeah. It's not subtle. Like, <laughs> Samantha's some not too subtle. Fingers that go missing at some point. <laughs> so did we hear your Christmas story about, did you have a story about? Yeah. Yeah. So the story is 
in Norwegian families, you open up presents on thanks or on Christmas Eve, except for like small Santa presents you open up on Christmas. So on Christmas Eve, my family, uh, we would go to church and my mom was in the choir. So she would have to sur- sing at two services. She'd have to like get there early. So she would leave early. And then my brother and I would go with my dad and like meet them at the church. And that meant that my dad was overseeing like the outfit that we were wearing <laughs> and Christmas dresses like Easter dresses were a very big deal. Usually my mom made my Christmas dress. It was usually out of like velvet or taffeta. Mm. Um, and like had like, you know, a little Peter Pan collar, a little bit of ruffles, maybe a little white velvet bow at the at the neck, that sort of thing. I loved them. I just thought they were the, the best. And that year, mine was red with, I think, black somehow involved. And, and I had a headband that was one of those really uncomfortable headbands that like was made out of plastic. And then it had some like, I don't know, ribbon attached to it somehow. And then I think I, I asked my dad, can I wear some lipstick? And I went upstairs and I, my dad was like, I think maybe he thought it was funny. I think probably he thought it was funny (laughs) and went upstairs. And my mom had one of those glorious lipstick drawers that had like so many different colors. She didn't really wear that much lipstick, but she always got the free Clinique samples oh right so she would just keep those and it was just marvelous <laughs> to me like I just loved looking at it and so but she had one that was in a gold container or a gold thing and I that was the bright red and so I put it on <laughs> this bright red lipstick and then went to my Presbyterian church service <laughs> in this bright red lipstick I mean the night it's like a you know a candlelit evening service so I think I got away with it because no one could see me but the picture afterwards then you know you finish the church service you go home and then you open up your presents and we would be have waited all day so excited and there's this picture of me holding my newly opened Samantha doll that was not purchased for me by my parents. It was purchased by my Norwegian great aunt who was like a spinster aunt. So she always had like some money to to allocate towards larger presents. Uh, And then I have just like this drip of red lipstick, just like coming (laughs) down the side of my face. (laughs) And the picture is just so good. Like it's just that, that moment of like such excitement just like I, I'm never letting go of this doll again. I'm sure she slept in my bed with me that night. Um, <laughs> but also just like sheer hilarity. And, you know, like your parent, parents watching kids open up presents. Now that I have, I don't have kids, but I have a lot of friends with kids and just watching all of like the weird behaviors that kids have. Like you have to document when they're being absurd. I think it's very important. I agree with you. 100%. <laughs> We see so many pictures of people who are, you know, in their 30s and 40s now with their American Girl doll in their like 1980s, 1990s holiday attire. 
And it's so funny because the thing that comes up over and over, and they don't always say it this way, is like, you never look more childish than when you think you're an adult holding an American Girl doll <laughs> at like seven. And I I mean, I have this too, like you think you're so adult, truly, like, you know, the pride you took in wearing those dresses and going to services mm-hmm. and, and getting, you know, your makeup done, you know, like self-styled, you think you're so adult that you have this yep. expensive special present. Yep. and. I think that's part of what makes those photos really special is that gap between like how you think it looked and how you actually appear. And that's why it's like, we don't make fun. It's like, we have those pictures too. And now our versions of those pictures have run in newspapers because we run this podcast. So it's like a very bizarre (laughs) thing. But yeah, it is. And I think the thing about an elaborate doll ownership scheme, like which uh, the American girl dolls are is that like you are mapping, like you are collecting a whole world Mm -hmm. and it feels very adult to have ownership over that world. And, and I, I mean, I'd be curious what you guys think about like the, the mix between having a world that is very mapped out for you. And then you just purchase the items. Right. And then versus having a doll where you map out like a, a whole space for it out of your imagination and like are creating the spaces and, and the, the plot lines and that sort of thing. Well, I think Allison probably can speak to that better than I can. Cause she was more into the, I was really into the books. I was yeah. less into the dolls, but Allison also did a lot of imaginative play <laughs> outside of like the prescribed <laughs> narratives of American girl. No, I I mean, I was a big doll person. My mom was a big doll person. So they were like always all over the house. And I had my sister's old Barbies. Like, you know, I had like generations. And I think that's interesting because if I compare like the play that I did, um, my Barbies got a camper and that was a foundational moment in my childhood because I was like, they can do anything now. Because I <laughs> I liked being in the yard, but not really doing anything too outdoorsy. Same. So now that now that my Barbies had a camper, I was like, well, they're mobile. They can go outside and they can camp. <laughs> this is great. But I think of like that play versus, I mean, Molly really did unlock something for me. It really did kind of open up a world. And we've talked a lot about this because both of our grandmothers were also of World War II era. And those were conversations that we never had. I never yeah. talked with my grandparents about that. That was not something that they were forthcoming or you know alive to talk to me about. But Molly opened up this whole world of like, she was kind of not that different from me. Like her world didn't seem super foreign, yeah. yet it seemed just far enough to be super interesting. And like you're saying about, you know, well, it's all kind of pre-prescribed. The fun for me and for my mom was looking at the catalog and thinking we can do that better and yep. ourselves. And I think for so many people who didn't even have the dolls, cutting up a catalog or finding stuff because the web wasn't there for us to do that. So yep. the remixing like was very genuine. I think with like Pinterest today, that would be very different mm-hmm. and, and not, not necessarily bad, but it would be very different. Like it was me and my mom in like Heidi holes in New Hampshire being like, how can we like haggle with this doll dressmaker to get just the right <laughs> stuff for Molly's bathrobe? Um, which is stunning by the way. Yeah. Well, you know, we had something similar, <laughs> like my grandma especially would look at the catalog and be like, Again, why would I ever? I'm a child of the depression. Why would I ever pay for this <laughs> item? Right. And then yep. having she and my mom both had the skills to to make anything, right? Like you're like, oh, you want a doll dress? I can make you a doll dress. 
Um, and I had the same experience with Barbies too. And I, I wonder how much this happens with kids now. I had my um, babysitters inherited Barbies, which were like very 70s Barbies. Mm. The makeup was different and their bodies were slightly different. And to me, like that was so exotic. And also they had all homemade clothes from my babysitter's mom. And mm-hmm. like in my head, I was like, oh, well, these aren't as fancy as my best friend Allison's Barbie clothes and like her fancy, you know, horses or whatever. But they they were because I didn't think of them as precious. I could just experiment with them more. You just do wilder, like weirder outfits, take them outside, as you said. My mom, mm-hmm. the classic thing in our house was like, oh, you need to go spend an hour outside and I would just go outside with my book and sit outside and read it. <laughs> yeah, relatable content. Um, well, actually, this conversation about or your question to us about did we make worlds that were kind of our own or should we stay inside the prescribed world made me think about kind of what our parents or grandparents intention was in giving us these dolls, especially mm-hmm. with your book in mind. So I kind of want to pivot to your book for a second. Yeah, yeah. Um, which we both really enjoyed reading, even though I will say it was dark at times. I had to like, <laughs> I, my tra- I'm trained in the history of reading. So actually like as a reading experience, it was really interesting because like yeah. reading about burnout, you had to, like I had to take little breaks just because yeah. so much of it resonated with me that I just had to sit with it for a little while. But you talk about at one point, this concept of concerted cultivation mm-hmm. um, that I think Annette LaRoe, Lar- yep. I don't want to mispronounce her name. Yep. And uh, invented. I'm wondering if you can maybe talk, what, uh, describe what that is, but maybe kind of put American Girl in that conversation. Is an American Girl doll in the books part of concerted cultivation, or is it part of this other form of parenting you describe that's more kind of like le- way less hands on? Yeah. Hmm. So concerted cultivation is a style of parenting that I kind of think of as just like a whole lot of parenting, (laughs) like just like doing a lot of parenting. And it is associated primarily with the white upper middle class, but has been adopted by people outside of that particular uh, section of society as good parenting practices. And a lot of it has to do with teaching your kids to, you know, uh, have conversations with adults uh, to learn how to juggle their own schedules at a pretty young age, how to multitask, uh, how to think of uh, object. This, a lot of this is me kind of projecting onto it, but a lot to think of objects or or tasks or skills in, in a sort of utilitarian way in terms of like, what can this do for me? And, and really overarchingly, I think of it as like, preparing your kids to be mini adults. Hmm. Like hmm. one of the the big shifts that happened as concerted cultivation really gained steam over the course of the, the 1980s and 90s is something, a lot of uh, unstructured play and activities began to shift to a much more structured style. So instead of just go play in the street, which was what I was doing when I wasn't reading a book, hmm. uh, it was let's have a play date with this person. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes there both parents would be present and it would be often orchestrated by the parents themselves. Whereas most outdoor play or free play is initiated by the kids. Hmm. Um, Or even doing something like soccer, like instead of pickup games, 
it's not even just league soccer. It's like, like, so, like the soccer where you have to go travel all the time, like mm-hmm. the best elite soccer. There's there's words for these. They were not accessible to me. We didn't even have soccer when I was growing. We had like kids soccer, but no high school soccer or anything like that. Um, and you know, I think depending on where you grew up, these things were either all around you and just naturalized, or they weren't, right? Like they just weren't options that were available for you in your everyday life. There are some things that a parent can do to like regardless of where you are and where your class is. So like you know, reading all the time and encouraging a ton of reading and encouraging a certain style of interaction with adults and with other people in society that includes like advocating for yourself. Like all of those are components of concerted cultivation that aren't necessarily bad, but then there are other things like constantly looking for enrichment activities. (laughs) um, And like all reading needs to be edifying in some particular way and instructional that I think something like the Samantha doll fits into that. It's like, this isn't just a doll. This is a history doll, right? Like this is a doll that's useful. Like you can somehow construe this play as, as meaningful play when, I don't know, what do you guys like? How do you place that? What do you think? How does it fit in for you? I think a lot of what your book made me think about is like how many things you do that are really just to make you better at being a worker. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you know, like we, your chaps are about like, do you have a hobby? Well, is it really a hobby or is it something you should monetize? And I was like, our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, sort of like those those slippages of like how how much of the things that you do are what make you good at being a worker. And I, I do think for a lot of what you're talking about, like part of why people sort of prescribe American Girl or give it to children is it's part of a middle class education, right? Yeah. Like class is both very important and not something to be talked about. And I think part of what we go around and around with in different ways is like lessons of American Girl about how important you are as a girl and mm-hmm. how that changes based on like the race, ethnicity, and background of the character. But I think a lot of the early characters was sort of like, you're a young white girl and you're important. And yep. like your stories have always been important and kind mm-hmm. of validating that. And that's why Connie Porter's books with Addie feel different because they're empowering young black girls to see themselves as valuable in history. I think at at least for like the concerted cultivation piece, like it was part of a larger picture of people saying like, of course you're important. And of course you'll be amazing. And for me, like this, this sort of idea of, well, I'll get a PhD and like, I'm really good at school. So I'll just keep being really good at things. Same. No, I'm serious. Like, no, that's I'll, no, I'm not kidding. Have Same. That. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was sort of like that Molly ethic of like, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wear pants because as you say, there's a war on and I'm gonna crush it. And like I'll be the best victory gardener. And I think what's hard is when you're trying to separate, like I loved reading as a kid, but I was also very competitive. And yeah. I, you know, like when I got second place in my town library's contest, I flipped out. And for some reason, I thought it mattered, right? Yeah. And and it's separating that thing of like, well, why did it really need to be quantified? And like, why when I wanted to read classical books, did I need to read every book on the Barnes and Noble bag? That's not a thing. But to right. me, that was like the height of the the canon. I was right. like, well, people who've read all these books are probably really smart. So seventh grade me tried to read them, which went really bad. Yeah. I <laughs> wanted to read all of the books. We had like a book report system in fourth grade where like books had points. And so the Mm. longer books had more points. I'm like, I never had to worry about grades. That was not the problem. I wanted 
the highest points. And the mm-hmm. highest point book was David Copperfield. I didn't understand a single word of it, <laughs> right? But I wanted that that distinguishment uh, like of being the highest point getter, even if no one else was competing with me, right? So it wasn't just the competition. It was also the competition with myself. Mm. And that, to me, speaks to the way that like we have evacuated some of these different processes of learning, of actual learning, right? Like if you're not understanding the book, why are you reading it? Like, it doesn't matter if you get all of those points, if it means nothing. Mm. Um, and I think it too of like how, how valuable so many different types of books are to the formation of imagination and that sort of thing. So I, like, I, I like that I was somehow, and I don't know how much my mom consciously shaped this and how much she didn't allowed to oscillate between pretty adult pulp stuff like John Grisham. I devoured, I was obsessed with like um, Stephen King, which like, you know, way I was not old enough uh, (laughs) and (laughs) in any capacity and then stuff that my mom was reading in other ways, like that, like I read the English patient when I was in seventh grade and didn't really understand it. Um, (laughs) But I was like, Oh, I'll read this again when I'm in ninth grade. And then I got it. And I was like, this is amazing. This is the best book. Uh, Or the portrait of a lady. That was another one that I read too young, but. Oh, the Star Trek books is the other thing. I read a ton of Star Trek, the next generation books. And so like, just knowing that like there were books can do so many things for you. They don't have to be highbrow in order to like, give you escape or, or add texture to your life. And I don't know, like my partner is, is younger than me and he went to like a very cutthroat prep school in the, the suburbs of Philly. And like, he doesn't know what his taste in books is because all of the books he's read have always had like, Oh, it has to be for a class. Oh, it's for this thing. Like it's not, he's it's not mm. self-guided in that capacity. But going back to the thing that you said about like, <laughs> young girls being told that their story is like that they are important and young white girls in particular, it's such an interesting iteration of this still pretty like second wave feminism that was going on at that moment. Like in other corners of the United States, there was much more intersectional components to feminism. But I think the the sort that was getting commodified and passed down (laughs) was like, it's still great to have consciousness raising about like little girls of history, <laughs> you know, like to write women in any capacity into the history books still was kind of like seen as an important act instead of thinking about all of those different components of it. Yeah. I don't think pleasant Rollins was too deep into second wave feminism or <laughs> who knows what, I mean, I think she truly as we've called her this in other capacities, but like kind of the forerunner to a girl boss mentality. Yeah. Yep, and that's totally. the kind of narrative that she's foregrounding. Like it's enough for her that she's just put a girl into the yep. story and as the center of the story. What yep. happens after that is less of her concern. I mean, it, it's like, it is interesting to think in the eighties and nineties of the sliding scale of these series for girls. Cause even babysitters club with the new adaptation that just came out and writing around the original series saying, like their club meetings could be seen at like were drawn from consciousness rating meeting structures. And like, obviously that's not even in the same stratosphere as what Pleasant was thinking about with <laughs> mm-hmm. American girl. But even that as um, uh, Ann Martin said herself was far from diverse when she wrote it. And so yep. she's happy that it's 
more inclusive now. So it is interesting that even within this whole like genre, there's such a spectrum of representations of women or more yeah. motivations. Yeah. Well, I have a question about Taylor Swift and American Girl, but I feel like that should <laughs> yeah. be later as yeah. we're oh, talking that's about. Interesting, but well, I, what I wanted to ask was, I think of you as actually like a foundational scholar of Taylor Swift. <laughs> I, I think your pieces on Taylor Swift have been very, very sharp about thinking back to her era of like her squad mm-hmm. and all that, which I found the toughest to take of her oh. public persona, just being frank. Cause you know, we're hosting a show about American girl. We're best friends. Like friendship is so foundational to this brand and to what we're doing on our show for her to commodify something that I actually take really seriously was just very difficult mm-hmm. stomach. But at the same time, like reading your more recent writing about kind of the turns in her public persona. I'm thinking about her latest album and I don't right. know if you've written about it yet, but I'm wondering, do you see this as her Kirsten turn? <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's the AG related question, but then also just sort of like, where do you make of her now? I definitely think it's her Kirsten turn aesthetically 100%. I mean, like, Bon Iver and the and Aaron Dresner, <laughs> like they they are hanging out in like the Midwest woods. Like that is she is hanging out there with them, even if just like sonically. Uh so and there's just like the general softening of all these parts of her her look, right? Like the sweater and the the softening <laughs> of the hair mm-hmm. that is such a turn from like all of those paparazzi photos of her like stepping out from her Manhattan apartment in like high heels and high shorts, like <laughs> dress shorts, you know, and like some fancy coat that she'll never wear again that she's wearing for five minutes. It's a turn. Uh, I, I think that first you're totally right that the thing that was so off-putting about that moment in her career was that commodification of friendship and the way that it encouraged other people to think of their own friendships as commodities that should be packaged and aestheticized and put on Instagram as well. Right. Mm. And I sometimes have this struggle of like my closest friends in the world who are all like just normal women living their lives. Uh, I'm like, why didn't you post a picture of me when we hung out the other day, right? Like, I'll I'll be like, I posted a picture. Why didn't you post a picture? And it's because their brains aren't broken. And they don't think of, like, whether or not, of, of like, you know, documenting every time that we spend time together is something that they need to broadcast. Because they have, like, 102 followers and, like, 20 of them are their relatives. And it's mostly just a site where they post pictures of their children so that they don't have to send them to their relatives all the time, right? (laughs) And I resent that I even feel that way. Like, that's a crappy way to think about how your friendship is valued. Um, I think like a lot of people, you know, the the pandemic has driven home the importance of those sorts of friendships and how difficult it was to maintain them in pre-pandemic times because we are all so busy that we don't have time for anyone. (laughs) I'm like, what are we doing that we're so busy? How is it that we... You know, we're just we're working so much that like 
that's why people feel so good about pre-pandemic about canceling plans all the time. They're like, Oh, the relief of canceling plans with someone <laughs> who actually means something to me. Like, so it's such yeah. a good feeling. Let me make a t-shirt about it. Right. <laughs> um, True. But then, you know, I just think she like, how old is she exactly now? She's like 27. I think she's closer to 30. All the Swifties listening to this are going to be like screaming because I'm not <laughs> as deep as they are. I don't know her birthday, but I will say we have beloved listeners who write to us anytime we talk about Taylor Swift and no, I'm being serious. And they say, I hold my breath the whole time you talk about her because she means a lot to people. Yeah, and so we do. Yeah. And I, I told if, if she was an irrelevant piece of our culture, there'd be nothing to talk about. Right. right. Like if she didn't mean anything to anybody. Um, so she was born in 1989. So she oh, is right. 30 going on 31. Oh, oh my God. She's, what? Yeah. So she's she's had a 30. Well, okay. So that explains everything. Right? Yes. Say like, more. She's just like, think back when you were that age. Like, yeah. It was relatively recent for you. But I think about like, that was the time when I was like, actually figuring out some priorities in my life. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily in like grand epiphany style. No, but just in small moments. I when yeah. you brought us back to that age, my first thought was of finishing grad school and my Ugh. gift to myself speaking of friendship <laughs> was I basically was like there's all these people I know from grad school who aren't actually good friends to me. They're like weirdly competitive. It doesn't feel good. So I just sort of like moved on from that and that was like the greatest gift of turning 30 aside from seeing Dolly Parton in concert, which was the number one perennial gift of my life. <laughs> I received I think I defended, yes, I defended on my 30th birthday. Oh my, my God. dissertation, right? So I had a similar feeling. I, although I, that was accompanied by all of the, the toxic toxicity of still navigating the job market and all of that sort of thing, but it still felt like a, a fulcrum in my life. And I just like, whether it's with appearance, whether it's looking back on some of your behaviors of your 20s and like having a little bit of distance to be like, oh, that's why I was acting that way. (laughs) And maybe that's Mm -hmm. facilitated by actually finally having access to counseling or just getting a little older, you know, like there are so many or or breaking up with someone or, or abandoning a toxic friendship or a toxic component of your family life. Like there are so many things that can happen, but I think it oftentimes happens between the ages of like 28 and 32. And also like there are physical things that happen to your body. Like you kind of like you, your skin changes again in your thirties and oftentimes your hair changes in some way. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people like you see that a lot of your, your peers, if you are of a certain class, your peers are getting married at that point and starting to have babies. And so it just, it's like existential crisis time in slow motion. And when I see like the documentary, I see someone who is figuring that out. Like over the course of the documentary, she is gradually figuring some of this shit out. And now she's on the other side. And whether it's in terms of like the way she's speaking politically or the art she's producing, I just, I think it's really fascinating and and good. I totally agree with you. And actually seeing the Paris Hilton documentary, which she is older by almost a decade than Taylor Swift, watching that documentary, which I found was not for like, I had very negative responses to that documentary, but basically it was like, here's a person who has not grown at all, who has Mm -hmm. taken zero responsibility for any of her behavior. Yep. And to me, like is using trauma, I'm not denying her trauma, but using that as something to pivot away. Like 
yes, that's powerful that she's facing that, but also she's not facing all of this other stuff for which she's actually responsible. Yeah. Like there's no personal growth. That was my takeaway from that documentary, which then made me look back at Taylor Swift's documentary and her latest album, which I actually like. And I was like, wow, this is a person who's figuring stuff out. Mm -hmm. I think that as an artist, she has some space to work through those ideas whether it's in lyrics or the, you know, the fact that the new album, a lot of it is actually more, it seems less biographical, Mm -hmm. right? She's like weaving stories and narratives and that sort of thing. So she's allowing her mind to kind of play outside of itself shows she's still working through stuff, but it's not so incredibly self-centered. And I think that not that her previous stuff was self-centered. I mean, everything I'm always obsessed with myself, right? We're all always (laughs) obsessed with ourselves and thinking through our reactions to things. But uh, Paris, on the other hand, like has not had an art project other than her image. Mm -hmm. She hasn't had the, and that, that image has not sophisticated or, or done anything. Like she has not grown as an artist in any capacity. Yeah. It's like, it's weird because they point you to the fact that, she created air quotes, reality television or whatever, which, you know, take that for whatever it is. But that performance that they show of her in the simple life, like that performance that she's been acting out for decades now hasn't changed. Like there's been no change over time in that performance. So I guess that's what was really striking to me seeing her documentary. And then it's, it's hard to sit with the like she wants to revisit her past, but by pointing us to her past, like the unintended effect is you see there's no change over time. Yeah. And that's huge, right? Like yeah. you can look at Taylor Swift and like there are similarities, I think, between the new album and some of her very original, like very early country stuff uh, in ways that just seem consistent. Uh, but at the same time, there's so much growth, like artistically, yeah. musically, emotionally. And she's just trying to reckon with some stuff, I think. Totally agree with you. I, I, it was one of those albums where I listened to it once and I thought, okay, these are my favorite songs off this album, but it actually benefits from multiple mm-hmm. listening, which I think is a sign of good work as opposed to, I mean, she's retreating to the woods as a sign of <laughs> a t- place of growth to work things out. Yeah. I don't even want to say his name on this podcast, but another person who tried oh. to mature <laughs> by becoming a man of the woods, like that album is so terrible. <laughs> I can't even speak about it. I know it's not the woods. <laughs> it's not the, so I bad. Mean, do you have thoughts on that individual, that album? They are, we're talking about the individual who is married to another individual. Mr. Beale. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. I think Mr. she is, B. I think she is more interesting in her like legwear modeling than he is in his present <laughs> oh career. No, I'm serious. I think, I think her embrace of activewear was smart and astute. Yeah. Like she saw the writing on the wall. She was like, look, Kate Hudson's doing it. Yeah. Like all of these other people, like if, if Kate Hudson can have a, a, exploitative leggings line and I can have you know. this is America <laughs> when you're done playing a person who lives in a cultish religious family you marry a pop star and you have multiple children and you hide the second one and you make children in the Philippines no make leggings 
And also the off fudge restaurant. I mean, I can't that's even, what you do. Okay, yeah. Alex, I've seen every episode of Seventh Heaven, so it's like now I'm reading it, but it's like <laughs> been there. Can I say a part of your book that, like, really, honestly, kind of floored me because it's something I think about a lot is that we assume rich people are good or interesting. Yeah. Like we just do. Like I think yeah. that's just an American quality. I don't. I don't think it's a human universal. And I loved where you talk about the fact that rich people now have such a pathology about overwork. Yeah. And I think this is why so many of us love Downton Abbey because they so flagrantly didn't work and loved it. Yeah. You know, like they had hobbies that they actually really cared about. Yeah. And they hung out with the mechanic in part because they were like, oh, he also loves, he loves cars. We love cars. We love ponies. We love hanging out. (laughs) Like common. But I, I think that's such an interesting point of like, we also like assume someone like Jeff, Jeff Bezos has worked hard and has earned what he has. Right. Whereas historically, the goal has been to be rich, to not work. Yes. Yes. And to pass down that privilege to your kids uh, in some capacity. And I think, you know, I wrote back in the day for the hairpin for zero dollars oh, when, I was, uh, <laughs> when I was uh, very happily, you know, selling my work for free because exposure and do what you love. Um, I wrote a piece about the, this is about the first season of Down Abbey, which to me is like the most addictive and compelling. And I was like, why does, why is this so appealing? And it was because like the, the household labor was so clearly split. Like there was mm-hmm. the social labor that one type of person did. And then the household labor that another type of person did. And like, clearly the rich people had it a little bit better, but like there was still intrigue in both levels. Right. Uh, and, but the, the, de- the clear delineation of roles felt very comforting. And I don't mean that to say like, oh, well, you know, the servants, they had such a great life. Like, why would they ever complain and not want to be servants anymore? But just that that clear understanding of what your job is and when your job is over and that sort of thing, like that is something that I think a lot of people just generally are hungry for. Mm-hmm. And instead we're just doing every job at all times, whether that means like labor in the home, labor as a mother, labor outside of the home, labor in your side hustle or your hobby. Mm-hmm. But that's something that comes up in actually every single Samantha book is there is at least one moment where she misunderstands something about the boundary between her and a person of a different class. Yeah. And like you kind of as a reader go along on that journey with her. But even on a fundamental level, her best friend is someone she's not supposed to be friends with because she's of a different social class. And I think what's brilliant about the book is like how they nonetheless learn from each other. But mm-hmm. truly, every single book has at least one section where there's a kind of highlight on a working person who's like, oh, Samantha doesn't really understand that our lives are fundamentally different. Yeah. Yeah. But then they kind of pull a catch 22 on her. And this is like the most jarring moment in the books, in the books and the movie, which is she finally makes an assumption that's in keeping with that clear distinction. At the very end, when she doesn't want Nellie to leave, she says, like, don't you need another maid? And they say, like, no, we don't want her to stay as a maid. We want to adopt her. And she's like, wait a minute, what? Mm. Like, you're going to make her my equal, basically, when yeah. the whole time you've been telling me not to be friends with her. Right. So <laughs> that's Too also far. textbook American though. Like if you can't yeah. actually be of the same social class, you pretend you're family. Right, right, right. Well, and that's in Downton <laughs> Abbey too, which like has 
for a British production, I think there are a lot of American ideas about royalty that get mapped onto to it. Um, but I do like that idea of like the rich person in a community. I think like there's so there is a distancing that happens with the books where at least when I was reading them, I was like in the, those days there were really rich people. And now we don't have that really. Like there is like the people in my town who are a little bit more rich. Like there were, there was one house in town that had like a fountain that I was like, (laughs) that's the mansion. (laughs) I'm sure it was just like a a doctor. (laughs) Um, But that idea that there isn't so much class distinction, which papers over just how much class distinction there actually is. Mm. I think all the time, like you read old histories of communities that were heavily segregated and particularly black communities where they were racially segregated from others, but they were um, varied by class. Right. So you had black doctors who lived next door to black sales clerks Mm -hmm. who lived next door to black teachers and, and so on and so forth. And like part of what was significant about that and like in the Northeast, a lot of like white ethnic neighborhoods is like the French Canadian who ran the movie theater also lived next door to 10 factory workers. Yep. And so, like, these people had a kind of understanding of each other um, that really kind of ended at some point. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, when people started to like pretend that they thought segregation was bad and started to change housing policies um, and integrated schools, like people lost that cohesion, Mm -hmm. which I'm not romanticizing, but like there was class diversity, even Mm -hmm. where there was racial segregation. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. The only time that I, that I have experienced that is actually in New York in an apartment building where there was still rent control. Hmm. And so you had a lot of people who were the, previous residents who were like who had longtime residents who were still paying like four hundred, five hundred dollars a month. And then like people who had moved in more recently, like me, who were paying like fifteen hundred dollars a month. And so you have that like all in one building in the same freaking apartments. We're able Mm -hmm. to live there together because of rent control. And but that is becoming a thing of the past. Unfortunately. Speaking of a thing past, Allison wants to question about molly as a baby boomer (laughs) yeah so i i loved the way you write about kind of like the world that boomers like have made that that a lot of us kind of live in and um i had a boss go to a series of trainings and it was to help her understand how millennials and boomers could work in the same office and that we actually had a lot in common and i think it was good because it was like you're actually allies because you share a lot of the same values um, but also this kind of question of like, why is there this friction, which I know is sort of like you've written books, you know, whole books and, and articles on this. But like, do we have to blame Molly McIntyre for overwork? <laughs> I don't want to. But- I can't sit with that, honestly. <laughs> uh, you know, so Molly, what year was Molly born? So she would be born in the 30s because yeah. she's a nine year old in 1944. Right. So she's kind of an older boomer. Okay. Okay. I, yeah. Okay. I feel. I feel we'll like. Allow it. Yeah. I think yeah. she's kind of a cusp. I think she's kind of in the middle. Yeah. She she's total cusp. Whew, okay. Yeah. Right. We're so, doing her next. So. <laughs> I think that the generation. So, like, my parents were born in the early fifties. So are on like kind of in the middle. I think of the generation and that. You know, I think it would depend on what her politics were (laughs) and where she grew. Like, where do you think she moved after she grew up? I I think we have to wait until we. So we're like our whole shtick is that we're Molly's. Yeah. 
But then someone said, remember that time she made her friend play bomb shelter, which we didn't. <laughs> oh, my God. Like her friend who's a refugee. So we're going to – like we'll come back. Yeah, okay. We'll, well you're going to have to figure out, does she, faced with the rolling uh, recessions of the 1970s and 80s, does she decide – I need to sustain middle-class stability for my family. And I, my, the way I'm going to do that is to vote for Reagan. Oh, my God. I oh think she God. does. Oh, my God. Why would she say loud? Oh, I think she does. No, I think she thinks it's morning in America. Oh, my God. <laughs> I do. How to be an American. Does. Oh, my God. No. Do you know why? Molly has a really radicalizing experience going by the deuce in New York city. And she just like, it takes her to a place that she didn't expect. And she's like, you know, I didn't hoe a victory garden for this. Oh no. She also unproblematically embraces Hawaiian culture and likely never questioned Hawaiian statehood. No, she loves it. Oh no. Oh, this is, I mean, this is, this is why it's like, we're afraid to do these books. Cause it's like, I don't want to confront this. I don't want to no. deal with like, she might've actually been really supportive of the space program. Like I don't, of course, <laughs> come on, Mary, wake up. I don't want to sit with that. Oh my God. I will say if you want to feel your own sanity, like if you want to feel a tether to your own sanity, the new Courtney music video, Courtney yeah. being the 1986 oh American yeah. girl, yeah. they animated it so that tears stream down her face when she watches the Challenger explode live on television. And honestly, you're watching it and it's like, I don't know if I've ever felt more sane or more out of control living in this country. Because sometimes I think, are we still living through a pandemic or am I watching a doll cry? <laughs> or over? both. But, you know, it, it made me feel... So that doll could could be Molly's child. Oh my! Ah, right. She's she's not because we do know her parentage, and it is a divorce. There is a divorce, so that's Which like part great. of storyline. Yeah, great. but I also but like she could like the the ages might kind of align. I think, she, right? I think she's a niece. Oh, I think she's a niece. God. That's all I'm going to say because For legal reasons. Well, and that I think I think because that's she the new doll is Gen X. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that would make Molly a late, like we said, like a cusp greatest generation. Um, you know, the thing, I think that millennials, as much as like we do have something in common with boomers in terms of uh, dealing with burnout and economic insecurity, like I think that we actually have more in common with the greatest generation just in terms mm. of like conditioning ourselves to instability. We're, like everyone I knew when the pandemic started to hit and like the economy started to go to shit, they were like, Oh, of course. Hmm. Yeah. This is going to happen. Like nothing stays solid for, you know, any number of years. I had just figured out, like had enough savings to have, you know, that whatever that recommended cushion that you're supposed to have. They're like, I just got enough after moving out of my parents' basement after the great recession. So time to move back in so that they can help with childcare. (laughs) Um, So I think that, that sort of conditioning, even though it's not the same as us living through, obviously, the Depression and World War II, it does mm-hmm. change your attitude. It changes the way that you interact with the world, the way that you think about the world. Uh, it, and it trickles down to even just like simple things like how you think about shopping and savings and that sort of thing. Like all the behaviors that I ridiculed my grandparents for in terms of hoarding. Like, why do you have all those clearance 
bed sheets in your closet, grandma? Like, why are you reusing <laughs> the tinfoil seven times? Like all of those things mm-hmm. that we are going to have scars from this, from this experience. And especially from the accumulated experience of like the great recession, plus massive amounts of student debt and the crappy economy that like our leaders keep telling us is good, but none of us experience as good. Plus the pandemic, like all of that coming together, is just going to it's interesting over. to think about your book is like right now it's definitely current events and it's mm-hmm. like too real, like especially to millennials like us reading this for whom this is lived experience. But thinking about like our children's generation and maybe grandchildren, like handing them your book and being like, this is a history <laughs> of what we did. <laughs> like what if this book is one of the accessories for the pandemic American Girl doll? <laughs> I think it I think she has like a burnt out older sister yeah. who's always doom scrolling on TikTok and Instagram. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something yeah. I really took away from your book and that I appreciate is you don't end with a tidy conclusion and you don't end by saying, and you can fix this in five simple ways. Mary and I have joked often that we would be very susceptible to what I'm going to choose to call like alternative living communities as opposed to the C word for cult. So because I I've been watching the vow, which is about Nexium. And I was practically crying at the end of the first episode because I was like, this feels so validating. Like it feels so supportive. And it's like how to kind of get yourself out of ruts and burnout. And I was like, I get this. And I like that you don't put it on people to say, you know, you can change a systemic problem. But I like this notion that there are things you can do to not normalize burnout, to not normalize. And I think about it all the time. Like what are ways in which like I'm being petty about timekeeping or overwork and I'm furthering this culture? Yeah. So we were kind of curious, like, you know, what what kind of things are you doing, especially this month in the pandemic, you know, to do that, which is yeah. hard. <laughs> it is so hard. Um, You know, a mix of the good old, like, saying no to things. Um, I saw the other day that uh, Linda Holmes from NPR, she was like, I everyone needs a no person in their life, like someone who will, if you, if you put a situation in front of them, they will always be like, no, that's crazy. Why would you do that? Right. Mm. And so finding who that person is, oftentimes it's my partner. Like I (laughs) was asked to do a presentation for a British magazine that would have had me getting up and doing the presentation at 5am and they were going to pay me like $500. And like, I still, I'm like, $500 is a lot of money. Um, And I was like, should I do this? And my partner was like, no, like you're going to tank your day. You're going to feel like crap. It's $500, which after freelance taxes is $250. Why would you do that? Right. And it's hard for me to look at money and look at an offer like that and say no. So the help of having that, the other (laughs) useful thing is if you think about yourself as your own assistant, right? Like how would your assistant respond to someone in this situation would be like, I'm sorry, like, this is her fee, you know, this, like, if you could, (laughs) and I even know of someone who came up with um, an assistant that they just became, like, they made an an email account for a guy that didn't exist, who they (laughs) said was their assistant, and then they had their assistant handle interactions with people so that they could ask more money and be more forceful. That's amazing. And so we can all get fake male assistance. Oh my God, wow. To make our lives easier and schedule everything. Uh, and then 
Another like small thing is just like anything that can take your mind wholly expansively off of work and force you to be present, whether that is a hobby that you are just absolute crap at. Like I think people are like, how can I get a hobby? Like pick something (laughs) that you are not good at and that you don't care about documenting and you never want to be the best at and then do it and don't tell anyone about it. Just do it for yourself. So something like that. Uh, or the the small thing for me, uh, for people who don't have kids, or even if you do have kids, I have my like tiny little pod here is my like quarantine pod is my best friend and her two kids and her husband. And her kids are two and a half and six. And so a couple times a week, she either just drops them off for like an hour and a half or I go hang out with them. And we do things like, like just play Play-Doh for an hour. Or just like run around in actual circles um, <laughs> where I got him, like the older one, a microscope. And so like we just spend time looking at like weird things on the microscope. And that sort of absolute presentness, like it's hard for me. Like whenever she's like, okay, I think I'm going to bring Jack over at this time. Sometimes I'm like, oh, but I have to do all this work, blah, blah, blah. Like that's the first thing that goes through my mind. And then I'm like, who cares? <laughs> like this is a time for me to be present. And and not be doing work and to actually schedule time in my life that has no productive value other than it's my way of being a person and, and being important in someone else's life. So that sort of thing, I think, is very helpful. Mm. Well, that's excellent. Do you have any pop culture things that you currently enjoy? Because we always share things, too, that we're uh, into. I am obsessed with Pen15. I... <laughs> cannot say enough good things about it. I think that I was wary of watching it because of like the premise of having older women play teenagers. I thought that that would be weird. I don't know how it's not weird. It's just perfect. (laughs) Okay. Uh, You guys haven't seen it? No, actually a friend just this weekend was telling me that she just finished it and she's obsessed with it as well. Hey, Joe, if you're listening. Oh my God. My question is, I get like full body flush embarrassed seeing people do things on screen that are embarrassing. So her response knowing me was like, you can never see this because it's an entire show of those (laughs) moments. And it's especially, it's since you're both 34, it is your junior high experience. Exactly. That's oh, a no for God. me. <laughs> yeah. No, no. My, partner, my, my partner is watching it with me and he is also that age and he is obsessed with it because it's just so spot. It, it, it has a really big heart. Like it is not, it's not mean. It's not, uh, it's, it's deeply weird and deeply funny. And you just get, try the first episode and you're going to be like, I, ah, I have to space it out. Like I have to like watch one and then take a couple of days. Okay. But Good it is probably that my favorite teen show that I have seen other than like, I mean, my so-called life, like them classics. You know? Iconic. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much. I mean, we can't believe we got to have this chat with you. We both, it's yes. like a dream to read a book by someone that you really <laughs> admire and then get to ask some questions. So this was so amazing. Much. I was looking forward to it all day. <laughs> I was like, I was looking at my schedule, which I have been doing a lot of interviews and podcasts. And like, they're always with like, Oftentimes they're like with some guy who is like a little bit dubious and like I have to explain things. I was like, oh, this is going to be so amazing. I'm so (laughs) excited. So my thank you. (laughs) 
All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you first and foremost to Anne. We so, so enjoyed getting to chat with you. So glad that we could bring up Taylor Swift of it all. We're still shook by your Molly takes. And look, if you want to share your views on our conversation or on the show in general, please get in touch with us. We can be found at a girl's pod on Twitter, at American Girls Podcast on Instagram, at American Girls Pod at gmail.com for email, at American Girls for our website. Whew. And if you want to talk to Allison, you can find her quite simply at Allison Horrocks on both Twitter and Instagram. And you can find me at Mary Mahoney123 on Twitter and at Mimi Mahoney on Instagram. We do so love hearing from all of you. Thanks to everyone who's joined our Patreon to listen to our extra episodes and take part in some kind of bonus watch alongs and so on. And those of you who have visited our merch store, we really do appreciate this community and everything that everyone does to support the show. So thanks again, and we'll see you on our next episode. Thank you.